Nationally, the increase in drug overdose deaths has slowed, but many states continue to see fatalities rise last year by 10 to 20 percent. Coming up, the CDC estimates that overdose deaths in the U.S. last year topped 109,000. Our story is coming up on this Thursday, May 18th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, conservationists are rushing to vaccinate California condors against the bird flu. The virus has killed more than a dozen of the critically endangered birds since March. Some communities are resisting efforts by New York City Mayor Eric Adams to bus migrants to their towns. They say they don't have the money to support the new arrivals. And a new documentary tells the story of Boston-born disco queen Donna Summer's life. It is co-directed by one of her children. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Biden administration is set to announce more sanctions and export restrictions to counter Russia's aggression in Ukraine. Here's NPR's Tamara Keith. Ever since Russia invaded Ukraine, President Biden has worked to rally U.S. allies to punish Russia economically and weaken its war efforts through sanctions and other measures. With the war dragging on, a significant goal of these new measures is to make it harder for Russia to evade the existing sanctions and prevent it from getting the supplies it needs to continue attacking Ukraine. A senior administration official says the U.S. will amp up the economic pressure on Russia by blacklisting 70 companies from Russia and other parts of the world, stopping trade with companies it says are aiding Russia's war. And it will bar access to the U.S. financial system for some 300 individuals, entities, vessels and aircraft. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. The U.S. announcement is expected in concert with other world leaders meeting at the G7 summit in Japan. But President Biden will not be joining other leaders of the Quad, Australia, India and Japan, to talk about the security measures they're taking to counter China's expanding presence in the region. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says plans are still in the works for Biden to head home after G7 to address more pressing matter that also has global economic implications, the threat of a U.S. default unless there's a breakthrough in negotiations that raises the debt ceiling. Those trips, they can be rescheduled. And, and we will still have those discussions, uh, absolutely. But what can't be rescheduled is the looming debt ceiling deadline. So far, Democrats are resisting Republican demands to link a debt limit increase to significant federal spending cuts. The top Democrat in the Senate says Congress needs to act quickly to regulate artificial intelligence. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the warning comes amid growing concerns about the challenges and potentially disastrous consequences posed by the emerging technology. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he's working to secure bipartisan support for legislation that would install safeguards around artificial intelligence. AI technology already touches virtually every industry, field, and facet in our society. So our process must be collaborative and must draw from a broad and bipartisan range of views and issues. Schumer warns that artificial intelligence has the power to spread disinformation and take away jobs from human workers. He also says lawmakers are working to maximize the good that can come of the technology, including its use for medical advancements and addressing climate change. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. U.S. stocks end the day higher. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed up 115 points to end the day at 33,535. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A federal judge has ruled that the permits issued to the offshore vineyard wind project do not violate the Endangered Species Act. The ruling comes after some residents in Nantucket sued to block the construction of the wind turbines. They said the turbines threaten endangered right whales. The project includes mitigation actions to protect right whales, such as speed restrictions for boats when the turbines are being constructed and when they're operating. Cape Wind is the first commercial-scale wind power project in the country. It's facing three lawsuits on similar grounds. Massachusetts can expect a hotter-than-average summer this year, according to new federal data released today. Jana Infanti is with the National Weather Service Climate Prediction Center. The reason here for the increased temperatures really is based on above-normal coastal sea surface temperatures that have been surrounding New England for quite a while now. And we also have decadal trends that are tilting towards warm Massachusetts also had the second warmest winter this past season. A former Bosnian prison camp supervisor was arrested in Massachusetts today. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston says Kamal Mirzitz lied about being a wartime refugee in order to avoid prosecution for war crimes. Officials say he oversaw a notorious prison camp during the war in Bosnia and Herzegovina in the 1990s. Investigators say he was able to hide out in Swampscott, even becoming a U.S. citizen. He was released on $30,000 cash bond following his initial court appearance in federal court in Boston. And two dozen 19th century medals stolen from the Springfield Armory National Historic Site have been returned. The medals were bestowed upon two armory workers and brothers for their rifle shooting prowess more than a century ago. The awards were stolen from the armory in the 1990s. A curator says that they remain in remarkably good condition. In the forecast, 65 degrees now, pretty beautiful out there. Clear skies down around the mid-40s overnight tonight. Tomorrow should be sunny and warmer. Could hit 70 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. Again, 65 degrees in Boston at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for dedicated and forward-thinking individuals to join their growing team. More information, including application, at Progressive.com careers. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. We have a new snapshot of the country's opioid fentanyl crisis today. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released preliminary data on drug deaths in 2022. There are some hopeful signs, but overall, the overdose crisis is not easing in the way that some experts had hoped. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann joins us now to explain. Hey, Brian. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so tell us more about what these new numbers show. Well, the big picture is that drug deaths in the U.S. hit another agonizing new record in 2022. This, again, according to the CDC, more than 109,000 people died, many from fentanyl overdoses. And on a human level, case by case, it's an incredibly hard moment. I'm talking to a lot of families who've been devastated by this. Fentanyl's now the leading cause of death for young Americans age 18 to 45. So a lot of families losing kids, a lot of young kids losing their parents, happening all across the country in every demographic, though, Elsa, we are seeing particularly devastating rises among Black and Native Americans. Mm. You say it's happening all across the country, but I imagine different states are being hit differently? Yeah, that's right. It's a really complicated picture right now. Some states are still seeing 
just remarkable surges, drug deaths in Washington State and Wyoming, for example, up more than 21% in a single year. Texas and many other states up 10%. New York City, where I spend a lot of time reporting, saw drug deaths explode again, rising 13%. But there are some other points here. Two states hit hard by the opioid fentanyl crisis, Maryland and West Virginia, actually saw some improvement. Fatal overdoses there declined by roughly 7%. Wow. So do we know why these particular differences that you're citing are happening? We don't. And that's one of the frustrating things. This drug data, unlike the data we got on COVID during the pandemic, is gathered really slowly and it's kind of spotty and notoriously inaccurate. These preliminary CDC numbers we're talking about, they're just now telling us what happened back in 2022. And that makes the public health response really difficult. I spoke about this with Dr. Nora Volkov, who's head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse. And she acknowledged federal agencies grappling with this crisis are often sort of flying blind. What is happening right now? I don't know. If you want to actually be nimble and flexible and do the interventions on the basis of what you are observing, you need timely data. Otherwise, you're doing it with your eyes closed. So that's really tough, given that we're decades into this opioid crisis. We're still seeing only about one in 10 Americans with drug addiction getting health care or treatment. So it's dangerous and frustrating for families who are struggling with this. Yeah. One hope was that drug deaths would fade pretty quickly along with the COVID pandemic, right? Like, is there any sign of that starting to happen? The short answer, sadly, is no. And this is a thing troubling a lot of the experts I've been talking to. There was this explosion of fatal overdoses in 2020 and 2021. A lot of people thought it might be triggered largely by the isolation and disruption of COVID. But Dr. Volkov says these new overdose death numbers suggest we're just not going to get that kind of quick relief. One could have expected is as many of the challenges that were imposed by the COVID pandemic are resolved, and that we will see a decline in the number of overdose deaths. It's concerning that we have not seen that. The big factor, Elsa, keeping these death numbers high, it appears to be fentanyl, this synthetic opioid, which is just so powerful. The street drug supply more toxic than anything America has seen before. And now we're seeing xylazine and other chemicals on the streets. So keeping people with addiction alive just keeps getting harder and harder. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to ask, are there any bright spots in this new data? There are. As I mentioned, some states are seeing drug deaths decline. Maryland, South Dakota, West Virginia all improved. Florida saw almost 200 fewer drug deaths in 2022. And it's also important to point out that the national drug death picture, it's not rising as fast as it was. It's more of a plateau, which isn't great, but it's better than the really deadly trajectory we were on before. Absolutely. Well, do any of the experts you talk to have an idea about how this crisis, this wave of drug overdoses might end one day? It's a great question. And unfortunately, the answers I'm hearing on this aren't particularly hopeful right now. We're seeing the COVID pandemic fade pretty rapidly. But no one I talk to believes we'll see a similar recovery from opioids and fentanyl. This is something families are going to be struggling with for years to come. That is NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Voters in rural America are a key part of the Republican base, and that part of the country is also heavily affected by climate change. NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports that for farmers in the political battleground state of Arizona, concerns over the environment transcend party lines. Craig Alameda has been farming cotton, dates, and leafy greens in the Yuma Valley since the early 90s. 
To grow crops in the southwest desert, Alameda and farmers throughout the region rely on water from the Colorado River. When we first got here, the river was overflowing and it was, they had way too much water. And that's 30 some, 35 years ago. But the region has experienced drought for over a decade and the water has long been over allocated. That means too many people have been taking too much for too long. So current water levels aren't enough to meet demand. And everybody's been uh, just taking it and taking it for granted basically. And now the roosters come home to roost. Craig is driving us along the All-American Canal, which is fed by the river and in turn feeds the farms. But in the face of shortages, federal and state governments will start cutting farmers' water. This is the canal that we're all sharing. This is the whole thing that is going to have to decide on who gets what this water is right here. This is the, the heart of the whole deal. The river fosters a vibrant ecosystem. This region is known as America's salad bowl. So a lot of these fields down here are for that spring mix where you buy Rural areas like these are among those bearing the brunt of climate change. And it's not just the drought. Worsening wildfires, temperature swings, and monsoons all affect food production, utility costs, and livelihoods. These communities also tend to vote Republican, which can put them at odds with climate activists and environmental protection groups. I can remember when we were younger, when you're considered a farmer, you were considered a conservationist. It was kind of the opposite, where we were the ones for open spaces and, and taking care of everything, and now all of a sudden we've become the bad guy. Farmers from this region insist they're not the bad guy. In a roundtable discussion with farmers across the political spectrum, everyone agreed on one thing. Something needs to be done to address the water shortage. But there's no easy answer to the current crisis. I have conflicting opinions rooting around my head on how much the government should be involved in our business or not. That's Matt McGuire. He runs a major produce farming operation in Arizona. McGuire is a registered Republican, but considers himself to be more independent. I mean, it's great that they give us money. Then I think, well, then you got this great big bureaucracy and a waste of money behind it. Maybe it'd be better if they just gave us double tax breaks, got rid of the bureaucracy, and let us figure out our farms ourselves. As an example, McGuire says his business is too large to benefit from money given to farmers in President Biden's recent infrastructure bill. Other conservative farmers say they are taking advantage of Democratic policies like a record $20 billion for conservation programs. Some Republican lawmakers now want to repeal that money. Kyle Kuchel comes from a Trump-supporting and citrus-growing family in Yuma, but he is a staunch independent. The folks that we have in office currently, we don't get to repick, so you have to work with them, or at least try. If you don't try, you're dead. Kuchel recently spoke to Democratic Senator Mark Kelly about some of the problems the industry is facing in Arizona. Hopefully it'll be, it won't fall on deaf ears. We'll see. I didn't vote for the guy, but uh, if he listens to me, I'd vote for him. While the politicking continues in Washington, farmers are running out of time and water. Decades-old legal agreements between the federal government, states, and Native American tribes have resulted in the overallocation of the river. Any solution will require water users to agree to cuts water users like Cassie England. So we're right now at the beginning of cotton season. We planted on Friday and it's up, so. She's a fifth generation farmer here in Pinal County, Arizona, and she's already been affected by cuts to the river water. 
we're getting none at this time. Yeah, completely none. And so the groundwater levels in our area are good, but we need to be able to maintain that and not overuse that. She said some of her neighbors can't access that groundwater, leaving them with no water at all. We're just lucky that, that we don't have to deal with that because that would be a very big worry because, yeah, there's some people that are going to be in a dire situation. England attended community discussions about ways to deal with the water shortage before cuts were announced, and sometimes those conversations got political. You could see a, a, a line, and it would be between individuals that would come in and be concerned about overpumping of groundwater, and then more on the conservative side, they would say, no, we have sufficient groundwater. But now that the area is seeing real effects, there is widespread agreement on the need for solutions. It's more so just wanting the Colorado River system to be changed. Everybody kind of has the same opinion, I think. The farmers we talked to said they're willing to consider candidates and policies from either party, weighing if those policies might help or hurt their businesses. That could be key in Arizona, a pivotal state for both Democrats and Republicans in the 2024 election. Robert Medler with the agricultural lobbying group Western Growers says for farmers, addressing environmental concerns is beyond party politics. Whether it's your local councilman all the way up to the president of the United States, you're looking for action. You're looking for issues to be addressed. I think people just are frustrated because they don't see that or and they, they don't feel it. Medler fears any potential solution will be tied up in courts as states, tribes, and water users fight over agreements. But until an official resolution is reached, farmers will continue to adapt their practices in order to fill America's salad bowls. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Yuma, Arizona. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Cooking up a brisket? Don't be in a rush. The art and science of cooking the perfect brisket coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Catchlight Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast. OceanStateJobLot.com. Stocks rose for a second straight day today. The Dow picked up about three-tenths of a percent. S&P gained nearly a full percent, and the Nasdaq picked up about one and a half percent. Massachusetts' economy is still growing, but at a much slower pace. According to the UMass Amherst Donahue Institute, the state's gross domestic product grew at an annualized rate of 0.1 percent during the first three months of the year. That is down 2.9 percent in the final quarter of 2022. The Institute predicts negative economic growth of 0.1% in the current quarter. It expects the GDP to shrink 0.6% in the third quarter. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. 
Lots of blue up above. We should have clear skies into the night tonight. Not quite as chilly as last night was, falling to the mid-40s overnight. Another day of sunshine tomorrow. Breezy, a little bit milder, could reach 70 degrees. And then for the weekend, kind of mixed. Saturday, mainly cloudy, possible afternoon showers. Sunday, maybe damp to start, then sunshine by the afternoon. Again, 65 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. New York City has received up to 50,000 migrants in the last year or so and says it's at capacity. Officials have started sending recent arrivals to neighboring cities and towns, and that's causing tension. Several local governments say they cannot handle the financial burden. NPR's Jasmine Garst reports. On a spring afternoon in Yonkers, Justine Sugru, an 83-year-old retired nurse, stopped by the Ramada Inn to see how she could help out. I came to drop off some clothing. I think everybody wants to help. But she says she's confused about how to help. No one, not even officials, seem able to tell her what's going on. Chaotic seems to be the operative word when it comes to migrant policy in New York. A few days ago, the city sent several vans, up to 100 migrants, to neighboring Yonkers. Here's Yonkers Mayor Mike Spano. We were given little to no notice. Um, There's no plan still today. There's really no plan. He says Yonkers is going to step up. And we're going to treat the refugees the way they ought to be treated. They're human beings, and and, uh, we're Yonkers is a hospitable community. But Yonkers already has its fair share of economic woes, and he's told New York City officials it can't shoulder the cost of social services for new arrivals. The question of housing for migrants has been heating up across the state. Governor Kathy Hochul has asked the federal government to open certain military facilities. She's also requested expedited work permits for asylum seekers to become financially self-sufficient. About an hour north in Newburgh, the mood towards migrants is different. Residents Linda Sheeler and Marlene Conley say they're worried. Conley says, I have compassion, but I don't have compassion. I don't know. I just think it's, it's me- uncertain. A few days ago, New York City sent about 180 people to hotels here. For Sheeler, it's a matter of resources. You know, years and years and years ago, they, the Statue of Liberty, bring, bring your homeless, your helpless. But now it, it's a different world. And we, we can't do that. We can't do that anymore. Where are we going to put everybody? This county and neighboring Rockland County both declared states of emergency. That helps get financial aid quicker. The counties also sought restraining orders against New York City, stopping it from sending any more migrants. The orders were temporarily granted by a state Supreme Court judge. Here's Rockland County Executive Ed Day. This is um, incentivizing illegal immigration, and it does nothing to support our infrastructure or the hardworking citizens we elected to serve. It is only draining taxpayer resources. That's just blatantly discriminatory and unconstitutional in in a number of respects. Amy Belcher is with the NYCLU, who is suing both counties. 
She also thinks concerns regarding 180 or so people arriving in a town of nearly 30,000, like Newburgh, boil down to political showboating. I think that there is no real state of emergency, as is being declared in these counties. This is actually not a very large number of people, especially compared with the large numbers that are in New York City right now. Far away from the political arguing in this lush green town of Newburgh, where many migrants have landed, at least for now, some locals say they feel the tension. Activist Ignacio Acevedo is also with the NYCLU. I've been screaming at to go back to my country. This is my country. It's the first time I have experienced so much vivid hatred. That tension always existed a little bit here, but now it's multiplied. He understands it's a difficult economy for some, but... When we have our neighbor moved in, we should at least go say hello. It doesn't cost you anything. Regardless of politics, he says, that's what good neighbors do. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. Donna Summer wasn't just a disco queen. She was a songwriter and musician who influenced stars like Elton John. I remember when I Feel Love came on at Studio 54, you just stopped in your tracks. What is this? NPR TV critic Eric Dagan says a new HBO documentary on Summer airing Saturday comes from a unique perspective because her daughter was one of its directors. The film Love to Love You, Donna Summer reminds us that Summer's introduction to America's pop music charts in 1975 was a particularly steamy moment. That song, which gives the documentary its title, was a smash hit that led the record company to dub her the First Lady of Love. But as the singer herself would say, it fed a sultry image that was not her actual personality. I approach it as an actress. I'm not trying to be me. What I am there to do is to become the character. And but Love to Love You struggles to explain who Summer actually was, despite including interviews with family members, archival clips, home movie footage, and input from her daughter, actress and director Brooklyn Sudano. Sudano co-directs the film with Oscar and Emmy-winning documentarian Roger Ross Williams. Here, her sister, Amanda Ramirez, speaks out on how secretive their mother could be. We were never allowed in her room. The door was always locked. We would find out things by reading newspaper articles they had clipped out and hidden in places. I actually remember the first time that we heard Love to Love You. Didn't even know it existed. Brooklyn came in the room and was like, have I got a song for you to hear? The film also makes the case for Summer's creativity as a songwriter noting how she worked with longtime producer Giorgio Moroder to create the percolating synthesizer part powering her next big single, which Elton John loved, called I Feel Love. When I went in to do it, I had the sense that I was floating, and that's what we wanted to maintain, that floaty kind of, that elation that you feel when you're in love, that kind of... Born LaDonna Adrian Gaines and raised in Boston, Summer grew up singing in church and moved to Germany for a production of the musical Hair, where she began making records. The film offers lots of performance footage and behind-the-scenes clips recounting her fights with her record company, abusive lovers, and struggle to be recognized as more than just a disco queen. 
But perhaps because Summer held back from her family, the film rarely digs deeply into any aspect of her life before moving on, especially when Brooklyn Sudano asks her uncle Rick Gaines about allegations his sister was molested by a church pastor. Uncle Ricky, mom never talked about being abused by the pastor with me. Did she ever talk to you about it? Yes. He did a lot of damage to a lot of people. Did the devil's work better than most. It became a defining moment in her life. It's not easy when you don't tell. I have the ability to tell people. But how do you get out of it? Even Summer's death in 2012 from lung cancer is handled obliquely, with fleeting glimpses of what she went through provided by a few short stories from family members. Such pivotal moments deserve a bit more detail. Without them, the audience remains at a troubling distance. For those who only know Summer through hits like She Works Hard for the Money and Last Dance, HBO's film offers important context about her talent and lots of great performance footage. But like the artist herself, the film can also be frustratingly enigmatic, just when you want to know more. I'm Eric Deggins. So let's This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Checking sports, the Red Sox take on the Padres and former Sox slugger Xander Bogarts tonight in San Diego. Lefty James Paxton takes the hill for the Sox. Fellow Southpaw Blake Snell throws for the Padres. First pitch is at 9.40 Eastern Time. Despite the recent dry weather, most of the state is free from drought conditions. According to today's U.S. Drought Monitor, only southeastern Mass and the Cape and Islands are listed as abnormally dry. That compares with a month ago when more than half the state was considered abnormally dry. Overnight tonight, clear skies should be not too chilly, about the mid-40s. Then tomorrow, sunny, breezy, a little milder, possibly hitting 70 degrees. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash MassAudubon. And Comcast Business with the Comcast Business Complete Connectivity Solution. It's cybersecurity, internet, and mobile, all from Comcast Business, powering possibilities. The U.S. military promised to implement policies that would counter extremism in its ranks. The services took in more than 200 reports of extremist activity just last year. So has the Pentagon made progress? We're really stalled out on an issue that's incredibly important. You know, it's like a drop of poison that can destroy all the water. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The federal government could default on its loan obligations in two weeks if Congress and the White House fail to raise the debt ceiling, which refers to the legal amount of money that the government can borrow to pay off its current bills. Republican leaders say they won't raise the debt limit without sizable spending cuts to the Biden administration's budget. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries says Democrats disagree on many of the GOP proposals, especially one that enacts additional work requirements for folks receiving federal assistance. We've continued to make clear as House Democrats that so-called extreme work requirements 
that these MAGA Republicans want to try to impose as a ransom note are a non-starter. Jeffrey says lawmakers have never failed to raise the nation's debt limit, including three times during the Trump administration. In Texas, a bill banning gender-affirming care for transgender minors is headed to the governor's desk to be signed into law. Elena Rivera of member station KERA reports on the impact this legislation could have on trans youth and adults. Under the measure, young people under 18 can't legally access hormone therapy or puberty blockers in Texas come September 1st. There are some exceptions. Kids who access this care before June 1st and meet other criteria can continue, but will be required to wean off treatments with their doctor's help. Bertie Gardner works with trans youth as part of the organization LGBTQ Saves in Fort Worth. Gardner says he's already had friends leave the state. Although the legislation is just pushing out these adults that our kids need to see are here, that the state is just slowly making it uninhabitable. He's not sure what laws like this could mean for his work or his future in Texas as a trans adult. I'm Elena Rivera in Dallas. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street today after several companies reported better than expected earnings. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The NCAA, uh, NAACP, that is Boston, and other community groups are taking legal action in the fight over new voting districts in the city. Lawyers for Civil Rights filed a motion on behalf of the organizations in U.S. District Court to ensure the new electoral map complies with the Federal Voting Rights Act. A previously approved map was tossed out after a federal judge ruled it likely violated the Constitution. The city council must now go through the process of approving new voting restrictions again. Eversource is taking steps to prevent power outages on Cape Cod during severe storms. Company spokesman Bill Quinlan says Eversource kicked off an infrastructure project today to strengthen the region's electric grid. He says upgrades will include taller structures made of steel and more robust power lines that won't be broken as easily by fallen trees. Quinlan says the project will also tap into offshore wind for the electric grid. The significance of this project is that it will dramatically increase the access uh, to clean energy for customers throughout Massachusetts. Quinlan says the project does not translate now to lower energy costs, but that could change down the road. A Fitchburg man accused of killing a five-year-old boy and dumping his body along I-190 will be held without bail. Alberto Sierra was arraigned today in Worcester Superior Court on charges of murdering his then-girlfriend's son, Jeremiah Oliver, a decade ago. He allegedly put the body in a suitcase and discarded it along the highway in Sterling. Sierra pled not guilty to both charges. He'll be back in court at the end of May. If you plan to go to the beaches in Gloucester this summertime but don't live there, you'll have to make a reservation for parking. The city of Gloucester is requiring visitors to use the Blinke mobile app to reserve parking at three of its beaches. Reservations are required for non-residents beginning May 27th and can be made up to 10 days in advance. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Senior Medicare Patrol. Detect, protect, and report healthcare errors, fraud, and abuse. Be an engaged healthcare consumer. If you suspect fraud, visit MedicareOutreach.org. And Davis Mom, committed to knowing the lay of the land, not just the law. Learn more at DavisMalm.com. D A V I S M A L M. Bright and breezy out there right now. Should have a nice clear night tonight, falling to the mid-40s overnight. And for tomorrow, sunshine again. Breezy, a little bit milder, could reach 70 degrees. 65 degrees now in Boston. The time is 435. Support for NPR comes from this station 
and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. From Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. There's a vaccination effort underway in California, not for COVID or the ordinary flu. In fact, the patients are not even human. They are some of the largest birds in the world, California condors. Ashley Blackford is the California condor coordinator for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and she is overseeing the effort to vaccinate these endangered birds against the avian flu. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks, Ari. It's so nice to be here. How do you vaccinate a California condor? I'm picturing people climbing up cliffs with syringes to find enormous nests. Like, how does this work? Well, great question. And thankfully, that's not what we need to go through. Um, Our California condor recovery program actually has an intensive monitoring effort of our wild birds. And that includes annual trapping events where we do health checks on the birds. And so that will be our our prime opportunity to vaccinate for avian influenza if if we take that next step. And so are these birds just getting vaccinated on their annual checkups? Because there's real urgency here. I mean, more than a dozen have died since March. The condors are already critically endangered. You're facing some time pressure. We are. So, but first, before we start vaccinating the wild condors, we are implementing a trial. And that's what uh, USDA approved was for us to initiate a vaccination trial First, we are starting with surrogate birds, which are going to be black vultures. We want to make sure that this vaccine that was developed for poultry is going to be safe for our wild birds. So we're testing it first in black vultures. And then we will vaccinate some of our captive birds as part of that trial as well. And then once we've gone through that kind of safety trial, seen an immune response from our birds, then we're going to flip and start vaccinating the wild birds. I think many people are aware of what a heroic and successful effort it was to bring the California condor back from the brink of extinction. Are you afraid that that progress could be undone by the avian flu right now? I mean, this definitely feels like a setback, in particular for our southwest flock in Arizona. I mean, they have lost almost 20 percent of their wild flock. I will say, though, luckily, big picture for this program The strategy around California condor recovery is that we have multiple populations on the landscape and that by doing that, you have what the Fish and Wildlife Service records to as redundancy on the landscape. And by having these multiple populations, you build resiliency to stochastic events like this, like a virus outbreak. We're talking about this iconic, majestic species that is critically endangered. But avian flu is affecting wild bird populations all over the country. Is this just a microcosm of what the bird population of the United States faces right now? I mean, how serious is this outbreak? Well, we are seeing this virus impact wild populations at a unprecedented level. Why this particular strain seems to be having such high mortality rates in in all sorts of species, you know, we really can't say. It's just um, kind of the luck of virus evolution, I would say. 
But we have seen these virus outbreaks before, you know, early in the 2000s, West Nile came through and they are novel viruses that wild birds are not exposed to. And so you can see these large spikes of mortality. And ideally, over time, we kind of reach an equilibrium with those viruses and the birds gain natural immunity and they're able to rebound. It's populations like the California condor that are very small, that don't have that robust population, we just take a really big hit because we don't have the depth of a population to allow for that natural immunity to build. And so that's really one of the reasons why we want to vaccinate is because we don't have numbers that can sustain the time that it might take for these populations to gain an immunity. Wildlife biologist Ashley Blackford is the California Condor Coordinator for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next up, your weekly dose of wonder. We got two cases, so about 160 pounds of pork butts that we're getting ready to throw in the smoker. That's right, smoking. Science editor Giselle Grayson is amazed by the way that tough cuts of meat transform in her smoker when she cooks them for a long time at a low temperature. Giselle wondered, what is the art and science behind this metamorphosis? So she asked some experts. George Levin got into smoking while tailgating at his son's football games. We went to college. I said, you know, I'm going to get one of those big smokers made and uh, pull it behind my truck and just tailgate in the parking lot. And somebody said, George, why don't you, you know, do it as a business? And Smoked At Barbecue Catering was born in Washington, D.C. During the pandemic, when gathering outdoors was the way to go, it took off. I get to go and cook barbecue all day long and then go to people's parties. <laughs> so, and everybody wants to talk to the, to the barbecue guy. And he says brisket is the hottest topic. It's the epitome of smoking because it takes the longest. You, you, you put it in the smoker and you just let it cook. But not at high temperatures. You always want to stay around that 225 to 250. A good brisket is juicy, practically melts in your mouth and tastes beefy, mildly smoky with just a bit of char. But why does it take so long for a cut of meat like a pork butt or a brisket to achieve this desired result? Well, meat is muscle. And, says American University food chemist Matt Hardings, the tougher cuts have a lot of a protein called collagen. The purpose of collagen in our muscles is to make them resistant to strain. All these cuts of meat that have lots of collagen, they are coming from proteins and animals that are constantly moving, right? So the legs of a cow chicken legs, chicken thighs. Collagen is basically shaped like a coil and cooking on low heat over time gently uncoils it. The magic of low and slow is when you cook collagen the right way, it breaks up into gelatin and gelatin makes jello, right? And you go from something really firm and chewy to fall apart tender. Key to that tender texture is retaining the moisture. Cook it too fast and the water evaporates, the muscle fibers crowd together into a dried, chewy cut of meat. So you can cook it at a super high temperature, but it's not going to taste as good. Both Hardings and Loving say you can't hurry this chemistry. I've seen some briskets cook in 8 to 10 hours. I've seen some take 14, 16 hours. It's something you just don't rush. And when it's done, it's done. Knowing when it's done is something a thermometer can definitely give you a clue about, but really you want a certain texture. Make sure you cook it to where it has time for the, you know, the muscle fibers to break down and get nice and tender. Where you can cut it with a fork, you pull it up, it's just about ready to you know, break on its own when it bends over your finger. Loving says you want to do this with smoke you can barely see. 
Billowing white smoke, not good. It may mean the wood is burning too fast, creating bigger smoke particles that give the meat a harsh smoky taste. Lower temp burning, says Hardings, means molecules in the wood, especially the lignin, are breaking down into smaller particles, providing all sorts of complex flavors and aromas. Things like guayacol, which is spicy and smoky, or vanillin, right, which tastes like vanilla. It's that carefully crafted combination of wood, temperature, and patience that makes the meat stand on its own. Loving, in fact, has a motto. We have nothing to hide, we put the sauce on the side. Other factors are involved in smoking meat to perfection, the rubs, the bark creation, achieving a smoke ring. Fodder for more chemistry stories as my family gears up for a savory summer with a little science, a little art, and a lot of napkins. Giselle Grayson, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A Trump-era immigration policy known as Title 42 expired last week. There were expectations that this would lead to an increase in the number of people coming into the U.S. through many of the country's southern border towns. In the past several days, that increase has not materialized. And people living in those border towns say they often resent this kind of attention. NPR's Ashley Lopez reports. The day before Title 42 expired, Brenda Gomez was walking around downtown Brownsville. Gomez says she loves living here. She says because it's on the border, the city is a mix of Mexican and American cultures. I grew up in Mexican culture, so I feel I'm at home every time I travel outside of the valley. I like it, but it just feels home whenever you come back here. So I like the culture, I like the people. Brownsville is one of the southernmost cities in the U.S., right on the border between Texas and Mexico. Often these cities get media attention when something happens with U.S. immigration policy. Gomez says crossing back and forth between the two countries is just part of life here. I travel to Mexico a lot. So I, every time I go into Mexico and then I come back and I see people wanting to cross over or just uh, people being held there for so long, it has its pros and its cons. On the one hand, Gomez says, she's okay with people coming to the U.S. in search of a better life. But, she says, people already living in these border towns need help, too. Danny Marrero, he is with a group called Lupe, which is a generations-old community organizing group that works in the Rio Grande Valley. Immigration is something that is important for the families that are already here and the families that are arriving. But I think what we hear most is, for example, access to good-paying jobs, uh, our infrastructure. They say recent thunderstorms, which were relatively mild, caused school closures and widespread flooding due to poor drainage in border communities. Marerohi says basic public resources like roads, water and electricity are top of mind and immigration is just in the mix. I think where we get dismayed is when we hear like the state or national conversation or the way Governor Abbott, or at times even President Biden talks about the border. It just doesn't feel like they're ever talking directly to us. And the way the media and politicians talk about border towns and immigration is perhaps the biggest frustration. Rudy Flores works downtown near a border crossing. He says a lot of what he hears in the media doesn't really line up with his experience. They're making it seem worse than it is. It's just calm. They're just trying to get somewhere, and I don't mind it, honestly. He says he's lived in Chicago and Colorado, and he's happy to be back in Brownsville. On the day after Title 42 expired, Flora says it was barely noticeable that anything had changed here. 
For me, nothing has changed. Even though I work downtown, it's just a little bit more traffic, foot traffic, but other than that, it's normal to me. In fact, federal officials say border crossings are actually down since the Trump era policy expired. Danny Marrerohi with Lupez says the expectations are almost always wrong when there is news on the border. And this time is no different. It's not at all the picture that I think people want to portray. It's much more like families and individuals among the most vulnerable in the world trying to find shoelaces, deodorant, and a way to reunite with their families here. Even though the media spotlight shows border towns like Brownsville as ground zero for the national immigration debate, Marrerohi says life goes on for the people who live here. Ashley Lopez, NPR News, Brownsville, Texas. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. And the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Spirits, Saring Sherpa with Robert Beer, closes May 29th. More at PEM.org. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. We hope you'll indulge us now so we can share something that's happening in our newsroom. A couple of weeks ago, the executive producer of this program told us he's decided to leave WBUR after about eight years here. His name is John Kane. You might have heard him on the air. Well, think of him as a behind-the-scenes air traffic controller, air as in airwaves. John has the final word on what we cover and how we cover it for the second half of the broadcast day. He writes and edits the news. He stands in the control room every afternoon to tell the engineer when to turn on my mic and tell me when to talk and for how long. He's got two cell phones and sets alarms on each one, and he doesn't break a sweat. Newsrooms can be tough places with a lot of pressure and a lot of attitude. John never screams, never demeans, never swears, damn him. He quietly and respectfully corrects dopey editorial mistakes. Uh, Lisa, uh, Tanner Houck actually pitched last night. And if you raise a concern with him, he'll tell you he'll follow up, and he does. Even if the answer is no, you can be sure he tried. John is leaving WBUR to take a job in public relations at Worcester Polytech. He'll be able to sleep later and have dinner earlier, and he'll have more time with his wife and Sheltie and catch more Bills games. And that's the thing that makes John Kane's departure from WBUR a little less painful. You can't help but want wonderful things for him. The bills make me wanna shout. Kick your heels up and shout. Throw your hands up and shout. Throw your head back and shout. Come on now. The WBUR supporters include Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. And UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The new novel, The Guest, unfolds against a backdrop of wealth. It is high summer. We're in the Hamptons on Long Island. Everyone is rich. Everyone is attractive. The champagne is iced. The beaches and the pools are perfect, sparkling, serene. 
and the main character Alex moves among them like a walking one-woman wrecking ball. She is a 22-year-old sex worker trying to leave that life behind. The guest is Emma Klein's second novel, following her barnstormer hit of a first novel, The Girls. Emma Klein, hi. Hi. I want to start with um, Alex, your main character. As I just noted, she is very good at crashing parties, at hopping (laughs) from encounter to encounter, from bed to bed, leaving destruction in her wake. Are you of the view that that is how some people are? That whether they're trying to or not trying to, they are inherently vectors for instability? I think I was interested in a character who in some ways was extremely perceptive about the world around her and could navigate it with ease, kind of scanning a room instantly and downloading social information, but at the same time have this massive blind spot about their own self and that that combination would kind of lead her into these situations where she creates chaos everywhere she goes. Tell me more about the particular situation in which Alex finds herself as this story opens. She's at a dinner party. She's at a dinner party and she's the guest of a much older man who has taken her out of a bad situation in the city and kind of given her refuge. And at this dinner party, kind of despite knowing that she's there almost as a social prop She gets too drunk and embarrasses her host at the party. She finds herself in the swimming pool with another man to get a little more detail around it. Yeah. So kind of this massive party foul that goes against everything that she's been trying to do, which is maintain this performance. You're right. I mean, it's very clear from the very beginning that she's an outsider. There's a passage um, in the first chapter that I wonder if you would read that lets us understand a little bit how all this looks and feels from Alex's perspective. When Simon had first taken her to the beach, he'd kicked off his shoes at the entrance. Everyone did, apparently. There were shoes and sandals piled up by the low wood railing. No one takes them, Alex asked. Simon raised his eyebrows. Who would take someone's shoes? But that had been Alex's immediate thought, how easy it would be to take things out here. All sorts of things. The bikes leaning against the fence, the bags unattended on towels, the cars left unlocked, no one wanting to carry their keys on the beach. A system that existed only because everyone believed they were among people like themselves. Among people like themselves. What intrigued you, Emma Klein, about writing from the outside looking in? I think it's a viewpoint that I'm always drawn to as a writer. And I think with this book especially, it was interesting to think about a character who in some ways is invisible because she's a young woman, because people have all these assumptions about what that means. That gives her a strange kind of power. People will act a certain way in front of you that they might not if they thought you were almost a real person And it makes her this kind of spy in this closed community. Mm. You're making me think, I also read and loved your first novel, The Girls, which is a totally different story set in the 1960s about a cult in California. But similar theme to this book, no? Both about young women on the edge of society, outside looking in? Yeah. Evie, the narrator of The Girls, is 
14. She's very naive and in many ways she feels victimized by the world or suffers at, at these larger forces. And I really wanted with the guest to create this character of Alex who who really doesn't see herself as a victim and who's moving very purposefully through the world. But I do think they both feel adrift and are looking for some kind of existential home. There is a disconnect between the plenty of the setting. These people have everything. And the fact that no one, including Alex, seems to be having any fun. Has that been your experience of places like the Hamptons? I have not spent that much time out there, but I do remember I was really struck by the natural beauty. But then that beauty combined with this very interesting microcosm of power and wealth that seemed directly imported from the city and recreated to scale really interested me. Yeah. And as a novelist, so much to mine because there are all the the rich people moving through that world. And then you write at length about all the people who are serving those rich people moving through the Hamptons. Right. And I, I think I was so interested in what is the desire of the wealthy characters in this book. And so much of it is the appearance of frictionlessness in their life. But then I was thinking, you know, who has to put in the labor to ensure this false reality of frictionlessness and endless pleasure. And those are kind of the domestic workers or the people like Alex, people who are brought in very specifically to perform this fake reality. You're making me think of the line you wrote about um, Alex. I think she's watching a gardener at work. And to your point about this life is supposed to be frictionless and serene and perfect and yet it requires was it a violent assault was that your words <laughs> by the gardeners like every day clipping and pruning and mowing and raking and chlorinating the pools and all the rest the violent assault that it takes to make it seem serene and frictionless right. and then it takes a kind of willful blindness to not see that labor but that everyone kind of agrees to not see it I want to end by circling back to where I began and the question about whether some people are just vectors for instability. The character of Alex, she was utterly mesmerizing and she was also really hard to root for. And I wonder why you chose to build a story around a character who doesn't seem to really want to do better or resolve her situation. She doesn't really evolve as the novel plays out. Yeah, I think I resist some of the classical narratives in a book or a movie that the character should learn something by the end, that there should be a moral, because I find life is so often not like that. I find that people often don't change. There isn't a moral to a lot of our experiences, and it really came down to this is going to be like a character study. We're going to see what this character sees. We're going to move with her through this world. And hopefully there's a tension that will carry you along. The novel is The Guest. The author is Emma Klein. Emma Klein, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. 
From Keeper, a password manager designed to keep passwords secure and protect against cyber attacks. Websites and app logins are accessible across devices, and passwords are shareable. More at KeeperSecurity.com. From Subaru, with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. Supreme Court has sided unanimously with Twitter in a case that accused the social media company of aiding and abetting terrorism. The court recognized expressly and several times reaffirmed that there has to be conscious, voluntary, and culpable wrongdoing. It's Thursday, May 18th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, President Biden's meeting with the G7 leaders in Japan, trying to tighten the financial screws on Russia for its war in Ukraine. Thousands of North Carolina families have been waiting for years for a state program to restore their homes damaged by a hurricane. We don't have hot water still, five years later, so we boil water for washing, cooking, and so on. More on why it's taking so long to help these storm victims. Also, a new record for living underwater. It's 501. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. With the debt crisis looming and President Biden out of the country for the next few days, talks are continuing on Capitol Hill between the White House and lawmakers seeking to come up with a deal to raise the borrowing limit. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer today said he's pleased to see lawmakers appear to be determined to avoid default. I am hopeful that soon both sides will find an agreement that keeps default completely off the table. We've made good progress this week, but the work continues. No one will get everything they want. Schumer's counterpart in the House, Speaker Kevin McCarthy, said it's important to have an agreement in principle by this weekend to give lawmakers time to vote. Biden is being updated while he attends the G7 summit in Japan. Walt Disney Company says it is canceling plans to build a massive new office complex in Florida and move more than 1,000 jobs to the state. More from NPR's Greg Allen. Word of the cancellation was sent to employees in an email from Josh DeMauro, the head of Disney Parks. He said the company had decided not to move forward with plans for a nearly $1 billion office complex in Orlando. In his note, DeMauro attributes the cancellation to, quote, new leadership and changing business conditions. The announcement comes a week after Disney CEO Bob Iger said the company's ongoing dispute with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis raised questions about the company's continued investment there. Angry that a former CEO opposed a law banning discussions of sexual orientation and gender identity in the schools, DeSantis signed measures stripping Disney of its self-governing authority. The New York Times is reporting that people briefed on the matter said the company's dispute with DeSantis figured prominently in the decision to cancel the project. 
Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. A federal judge is holding a hearing to decide whether a lawsuit over Georgia's congressional map should go to trial. It's one of several ongoing redistricting challenges that could shape the 2024 elections. Sam Greenglass with member station WABE has more. Republican lawmakers redrew the maps after the 2020 census, but a coalition of civil rights groups say the maps dilute the power of black voters in violation of the Voting Rights Act. The state says the maps are fair and should be upheld. A judge kept them in place last year for the 2022 midterms, but now has to decide whether they should hold for the rest of this decade. One important factor will be a U.S. Supreme Court decision expected soon on Alabama's maps, which could sharply limit some Voting Rights Act protections. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. With interest rates still relatively high and inventory low, sales of previously owned homes fell last month by their biggest annual amount in 11 years. National Association of Realtors says sales of previously owned homes fell 3.4 percent in April from the previous month. Compared to the same period a year ago, sales dropped a whopping 23.2 percent. Prices have also continued to come down. On Wall Street today, the Dow is up 115 points. The Nasdaq rose 188. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Investigators say the Lynn Woods fires that have been burning for about a week now were set. State Fire Services spokesman Jake Wark says 400 acres of brush and woods burned as a result of at least eight fires that were set. Some of those fires came very close to people's homes, uh, and uh, under these dry, windy weather conditions that we've been having, uh, fire becomes unpredictable uh, and especially dangerous to firefighters. Work says the state cannot say why it believes the fires were set just yet. He says a reward of up to $5,000 is available to anyone who provides information that leads to an arrest. Attorney General Andrea Campbell is throwing her support behind a new effort to protect transgender students from discrimination in school athletics. She's leading a group of state attorneys general that wants the Biden administration to update Title IX regulations. Title IX prohibits discrimination based on gender in federally funded education programs and activities. The coalition wants new language to prohibit bans on transgender athletes from joining teams that align to their gender identity. And U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren continues to criticize government regulators over their handling of recent bank failures. At a Senate Financial Committee hearing today, Warren said allowing J.P. Morgan Chase, America's biggest bank, to buy the failed First Republic Bank poses serious risks to the financial system. She asked acting comptroller of the currency Michael Sue about bids for First Republic from smaller banks, which she says would have posed exponentially less risk. Did you just ignore the fact that a failure at J.P. Morgan would blow a hole in our banking system that would be eight times more than the destruction to the financial system and let them grow by $200 billion? Sue said more factors than the size of the merger had to be taken into consideration when weighing the J.P. Morgan Chase deal. In the forecast, pretty lovely out there. Still clear skies tonight down around the mid-40s. Tomorrow should be beautiful again. Sunny, a little bit warmer than today has been. Could hit 70 degrees. 65 degrees now in Boston under sunny skies. It's 506. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by BritBox with the new season of Grace, based on the detective novels by Peter James. Grace and more original series, including The Bay and Karen Peary, are streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. 
Can you imagine spending 79 days underwater? No. Well, the scientist known as Dr. <laughs> Deep Sea does not have to imagine it. He's living it. And Elsa, you caught up with him today. That's right. It was a delightful conversation that's coming up in a few minutes. But first, let's head to the Supreme Court, which handed social media companies a major victory today. It was the first test case involving a legal shield adopted 27 years ago to protect Internet companies from lawsuits. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. In two separate cases, the families of people killed in terrorist bombing attacks sued Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, claiming that the companies had violated the Federal Anti-Terrorism Act, which specifically allows people to sue for aiding and abetting terrorism. The families allege that the companies did more than passively provide platforms for communication. Rather, they contended that by recommending ISIS videos to those who might be interested, the Internet platforms were seeking to get more viewers and increase their ad revenue, even though they knew that ISIS was using their services as a recruitment tool. But today, the Supreme Court unanimously rejected those claims. Writing for the court, Justice Clarence Thomas said that the social media companies' so-called recommendations were nothing more than agnostic algorithms that navigated an immense ocean of content in order to match material to users who might be interested. The mere creation of these algorithms, he said, does not constitute culpability any more than it would for a telephone company whose services are used to broker drug deals on a cell phone. At bottom, he said, the claims in these cases rest less on affirmative misconduct and more on an alleged failure to stop ISIS from using these platforms. In order to have a claim, he said, the families would have to show that Twitter or some other social media platform pervasively and with knowledge assisted ISIS in every single attack. Columbia University law professor Timothy Wu, who specializes in this area of the law, reads the tea leaves of today's decision as less than hopeful for those who wanted the court to curb the scope of Section 230 in this case. 230 is the shorthand for the law enacted to shield Internet platforms from being sued for other people's content. I think there is a lot of hope, and frankly, I think the Biden administration was maybe hoping that the task of 230 reform would be undertaken by the Supreme Court uh, as opposed to by Congress. But uh, I think this puts new pressure on Congress to do something. Even though, as he observes, Congress seems to have great difficulty doing most things these days. But lawyer Andrew Pincus, who filed a brief on behalf of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in this case, sees today's decision as a victory for free speech and a vindication of Section 230's protections from lawsuits for Internet platforms. There are significant downsides in imposing liability on companies that have internet platforms like the companies in these cases because what Congress said it wanted was to facilitate broad online debate and to make those platforms accessible to everyone. Section 230, of course, does have a provision encouraging internet companies to police their platforms to remove harassing, defamatory, and false content. And while some companies point to their robust efforts to take down such content, Twitter, the company that won today's case, is now owned by Elon Musk, who since acquiring the company has fired lots of people who were charged with eliminating disinformation and other harmful speech. 
While today's decision was a huge victory for Twitter and other social media platforms, many questions remain unresolved. The lower courts, for instance, have almost uniformly ruled that people alleging defamation, harassment, and other harms cannot sue Internet companies the way that they would sue a newspaper, for instance. The Supreme Court has so far never ruled on those issues, but today's decision could be a harbinger. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. This week, Ukraine made one of its highest-profile arrests on corruption charges, a person no less than the head of Ukraine's Supreme Court. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reports it's part of an ongoing crackdown on corruption. Vsevolod Knyasev was elected president of Ukraine's Supreme Court in 2021. Just 43, he seemed to have a long career ahead of him. But earlier this year, Ukrainian authorities began investigating Knyasev after receiving a tip that he was accepting bribes. He was like organizer of the scheme. Tetyana Shevchuk is with Ukraine's Anti-Corruption Action Center. Because it was not like he just influenced the other judges pushing them. He was distributing money. Shevchuk says the top judge allegedly promised other judges a cut of the bribes if they backed a favorable opinion for a company controlled by mining tycoon Konstantin Zhivago. The tycoon is already wanted on suspicion of embezzlement and is in France. He allegedly gave the Supreme Court head $2.7 million. I think people were more outraged because of the sum of the bribe and because it happened right now during the wartime. Knyasev denies the charges. Shevchuk says Ukrainians wonder how this arrest looks to their Western partners who support Ukraine with billions of dollars in aid. I thought that at the first glance it should be shocking and maybe for someone it will prove the narrative that Ukraine is really corrupt. But I really hope that there will be a second glance which will show that, okay, Ukraine is becoming a different country. President Volodymyr Zelensky is trying to show that Ukraine is a country that cracks down on corruption. His government has fired officials for even the appearance of impropriety. Ukraine must improve its transparency and strengthen its civic institutions if it hopes to join the European Union and NATO. In the central Ukrainian city of Dnipro, community activist Stanislav Samchenko says this arrest is big. To understand the scale of it, it's like the president has been arrested. That's how much influence the head of the Supreme Court has. A public opinion survey out earlier this month showed Ukrainians are more concerned about corrupt officials in power than they are about informants or propagandists for Russia. Not far from Dnipro's court complex, Tatyana Mazurova, a 17-year-old university student, says Ukrainians have lost too much since the Russian invasion to excuse corruption. I hope our partners in the West see that we punish those taking bribes, she says, and that we despise them. Joanna Kekesis, NPR News, Dnipro. All right, today is Joseph Dittori's 79th day living underwater. It is a new world record, but this is not some stunt. He is studying how extreme pressure affects the human body over long periods of time from his base in Jules's undersea lodge. It's a tiny suite deep in the tropical waters of the Florida Keys, and he's teaching online classes, spreading his love for science, technology, engineering, and math with thousands of students. We spoke with him just two Two days into this grand experiment, and Joe DiTori is back with us again today. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me again. I really love NPR ATC. <laughs> Thank 
you for that. Okay, well, first, though, I have to ask, how are you feeling? Because when my co-host, Juana Summers, spoke with you in early March, I know that you were kind of worried about some of the psychological effects of isolation, like, you know, no sunlight, the constant aloneness. How is it going? So I'll tell you that it's taken a toll on me a little bit. Uh, lack of uh, tactile, lack of motherly love, if you will. Mm. You mean physical touch, the lack of physical touch. Lack of physical touch, exactly. I get a lot of interaction with people, but not a lot of tactile. Well, what about your physical health? How is that going right now? Physical health yeah. is in great. I, you shouldn't be allowed to be this good. Oxidative stress is down. Every single inflammatory marker in my body is down. My cholesterol is down by 70 points. Wow. Collagen is up. Oh, I'm terrific. I Maybe I need to go underwater for 100 days. Come on, bring it on. <laughs> but let me ask you, is your family at this point like, okay, Joe, this is getting old. You need to come home now. Like, how much are they missing you? Oh, my girlfriend is like, listen to me. You're doing 100 days, not 100 days and one minute. You're doing 100 days. <laughs> you know, my mother, bless her heart, mm -hmm. 80 years old. She is taking a scuba diving lesson on my 80th day down here, and she's coming to visit. Wow. My family is so supportive. I'm blessed. That is so, so great. Well, I hope you guys have a blast this Saturday. So what has been the most surprising part of the experience so far? What would you say? The sleep unquestionably the sleep. I sleep between 60 to 66% in deep and REM sleep. That is unheard of for Joe Dottori. Oh, that's so interesting. And why is that happening, you think? I don't know. I believe it has to do something with the pressure blanket that I'm under. I'm under 25 pounds per square inch. You're at 14.69 on the surface. Uh, this is something that is brand new. Yeah. Wait, so does that mean you have more vivid dreams? You have longer dreams? Does it mean you feel more well-rested when you wake up? I feel much more well-rested when I wake up. I sleep only about six hours a night, but four hours of that is in deep or REM. It's <laughs> crazy. That's incredible. I, I mean, know. maybe this is something overachievers should keep in mind. Go 22 feet underwater and you can sleep less and do more. Exactly. I've been going since four this morning, and I'm pretty peppy for a guy that's been you going are. since four. <laughs> you are pretty peppy. Let me ask you maybe a more emotional question. Are there any lessons that you have learned during your time underwater that you think you'll take back to life on land? Absolutely. Oftentimes in this life, you can't control anything. So here I am in a position where I'm literally stuck underwater and the food doesn't come down or this thing doesn't line up or this person didn't call at the right time. And sometimes you just have to roll with it. Yeah. And that is one thing that in 100 days or in 80 days thus far, I've taken to heart, like, just roll with it and roll on. You can only control so much. Such an important lesson. It is. That is University of South Florida Associate Professor and Retired Navy Officer Joseph DeTore. So looking forward to talking to you again in a few weeks. Good luck, have fun, and we'll be back in touch again. I love it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, an FDA advisory committee meets to consider the first vaccine designed to protect babies from RSV. It's 518. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walden Local Meat, partnering with local Northeast farmers to hand-deliver 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised meat right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com.
Stocks rose for a second straight day today. The Dow picked up about three-tenths of a percent. S&P gained nearly a full percent. The Nasdaq picked up about one and a half percent. The state's second largest health insurance company is still trying to restore service one month after a ransomware attack. Point 32 Health says it still cannot process claims and requests for prior authorizations. The insurer is the parent company of Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and Tufts Health Plan. The attack affected customers of Harvard Pilgrim and New Hampshire Medicare plans. The company says some of its core systems for Harvard Pilgrim may be phased back in the week. It's working with cybersecurity experts to restore more functions in the coming weeks. This is WBUR. The forecast is ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Medical, regulatory, and other careers at vrtx.com. Such a beautiful day out there, leading to a beautiful evening and a clear night overnight tonight. Temperatures tonight down in the mid-40s. Tomorrow should be sunny again, rising to about 70. Then the weekend's looking pretty fickle. Saturday, cloudy, breezy, and damp. Some showers likely in the afternoon. And for Sunday, clouds to begin the day. Sunshine should move in by noon. Could warm to 74 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin since 1793. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Samantha Irby is an essayist and humorist, the latter of which was painfully obvious when we started chatting. Like all my friends' parents are going to be... So excited. <laughs> I think it's a compliment that your friends' parents are listening to NPR. I hope it's a compliment. <laughs> it is absolutely a compliment that, like, every Prius in Evanston, Illinois, has NPR on all the time. I feel so called out right now. <laughs> no, no, I promise you, these are the people I grew up wanting to be like. So. <laughs> You know, by not osmosis, by whatever the transitive property, I want to be like you. So (laughs) super polite, but quietly hostile is how Samantha Irby describes herself in her newest book, also titled Quietly Hostile. It's her fourth collection of essays in a career that's taken her from blogger to best-selling author to writing for Hollywood shows, including the Sex and the City revival and Just Like That. Irby's new book touches on that show, but also relationships, Dave Matthews Band deep cuts, and some very personal anecdotes. And I asked Irby to describe her writing for those who might not be familiar. Okay, I like to warn people who haven't read my books before that they are disgusting and I think you know people are like oh no they're not no 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 they're disgusting it's a lot of bathroom stuff that's funny a lot of um decaying body (laughs) stuff 
I do make it all funny, but I also kind of like revel in the grossness. You do write in this really funny and really spot on way about aging. How do you feel about getting older? I think my body, like I have Crohn's disease and I have some arthritis that is associated with the Crohn's disease. And I always just feel like a nightmare. So aging, the indignity of it, I've already been prepared for, right? You know how everyone's like, you know, when you hit 30, you're you're going to feel good about yourself. Your life is going to change. That didn't happen for me. Mm-hmm. And it didn't happen for me at 40. But I hear that 50 <laughs> is when you start to feel comfortable with yourself and like assured of your place in the world. So I'm looking forward um, to apparently the complete lobotomy that happens when you wake up on your 50th birthday. <laughs> Okay, so I have to tell you, you put into words in this book something that I think a lot about all the time, but I have never heard anybody articulate before. Ooh. <laughs> it is about the complexity of feeding your spouse's kids. And I am also a step parent. I wonder if it's okay if I read this part of the essay. Please. You wrote, I will pick up food from a dark and foreboding alley if it means I don't have to cook for children whose constant disapproval causes me physical pain. I'd rather listen to you calling me the C word than hear one of them say, can I be excused in an annoyed tone while pushing away from the elaborate meal I slaved over to go eat stale Fritos and drink room temperature Arizona in front of the Nintendo in their bedroom. (laughs) It's the truth. I, I, (laughs) nothing is more crushing. Like Mm -hmm. they, if you ask them if they like your clothes, they do not. If you ask them if they like the music you put on, they do not. And it's sad because unfortunately for me, I'm a person who like seeks validation. Yep. Even from a kid, which is maybe the most embarrassing thing I could ever say. But like the meal stuff, it's like I diced and I chopped and I sauteed. And I mean, I don't need them to throw a parade when I serve it, but I kind of want them to throw a parade, right? You also write about your parents in this book. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about them and what your relationship with them was like. My parents both died separately I was 18. My mom had multiple sclerosis, which is devastating. My dad was like a 'er ne'er-do-well. They had gotten divorced when I was four. He's kind of in and out of my life. I'm like, I don't know them, you know, because your parents don't really show you their adult self. At least mine didn't. And so... I think my specific, like, grief, oh, God, what word can I use other than journey experience (laughs) has been, like, God bless them for getting together and having me. The situation is sad, but I am not sad. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, the thing that you wrote in your book about both of your parents that really stuck with me was the part where you ask yourself this kind of unanswerable question about whether it's bad that you don't miss them and whether you're supposed to keep a candle burning for someone whose voice you don't remember. And I I mean, I thought about that a lot because my mother is still alive. I haven't spoken to my father in 
decades at this point. Mm-hmm. And people always ask me if I feel bad about that. And it's like, am I supposed to? I, I feel I feel like I'm living my life, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think people I think people who say things like that assume and I, I don't mean to say anything about your dad because I don't know him, but he sounds a lot like yours. Dad. He sounds a lot like yours. <laughs> okay, okay, good. So like people assume you had like good parents who were sweet and took care of you. And it's like, I didn't. So we had our we had our time. I cried a lot in my teens. And then, like, you got to keep moving. Okay, I'm going to make a hard right turn here. You touch on so much in this book, that love for Dave Matthews, but you also write about (laughs) porn and self-pleasure. And there's even a whole list of things and places that you have peed over the past few years. So (laughs) I am curious, in putting this book together, was there ever any moment where you looked at something you wrote and were just like, nah, that one, that cannot go in this book. Did you ever have a moment like that? No, because I say this all the time, so I hope nobody's heard me say this before, but I truly, like, when you write about something personal, you have to be okay with it, like, being on a billboard or being on the news, right? Because for the rest of your life, people who have read your work will, like, quote that back at you, you know, not thinking about how people on the whole are going to react makes it very easy to just say whatever I'm going to say. And then as soon as the thing is done, I immediately send it to my editor so that I can't (laughs) take it back or waste the words or whatever. It's fine. You know, you want to talk about it. Great. You're disgusted by it and want to skip ahead that's fine too. I turn it in without thinking and I'm like, well, it's in the world's hands. There's nothing I can do. Author Samantha Irby, her latest book is Quietly Hostile. Samantha, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was a dream. You're the best. You're the best. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox take on the Padres and former Sox slugger Xander Bogarts tonight in San Diego. Lefty James Paxton takes the hill for the Sox. Southpaw Blake Snell throws for the Padres. First pitch is at 940. In the forecast overnight tonight, clear skies for us. Not quite so chilly as last night, falling to the mid-40s. And for tomorrow, sunny, breezy, a little milder, could reach 70 degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Surter Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at surterpro.com. That's Surta with a C. And Native Plant Trust's Garden in the Woods in Framingham, offering pollinator-friendly plants for sustainable gardens grown from seeds without pesticides. NativePlantTrust.org.
At NPR, we don't just sit in the host chair. We take the shows to the news and find the voices you need to hear. We're reporters at heart. I'm Leila Falden, host of Morning Edition. I've covered everything from a coup in Egypt to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis to the war in Ukraine. And I want to remind you that your old car could help keep that work going. Donate it to this station, and it will go towards keeping our reporters in the field. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Michigan, the parents of a teen who shot and killed four classmates at a high school in 2021 are asking the state Supreme Court to dismiss their criminal charges after prosecutors there took the rare step of charging James and Jennifer Crumbly with involuntary manslaughter. From member station WDET, Quinn Kleinfelter reports. Prosecutors want the Crumblies to stand trial, claiming they were grossly negligent for ignoring signs their son was troubled and could become violent. Instead, they bought him a handgun. A court of appeals judge found that parents should have known that in his, quote, mentally deteriorated condition, their son could use the gun to commit a crime. But defense attorneys want the Michigan Supreme Court to reconsider that ruling, arguing the Crumbly's son was a direct cause of the killings and they had no idea he would go on a murderous rampage. The attorneys say the stakes are unusually high because the case could set a precedent for whether parents can be held criminally liable for the actions of their children. For NPR News, I'm Quinn Kleinfelter in Detroit. The nation's largest retailer, Walmart, is raising its forecast for sales and profits for the year. More shoppers are turning up at its stores looking for lower prices because of inflation. Here's NPR's Alina Selyuk. Retailers across the board have been saying that shoppers have pulled back their spending on clothes, electronics, and other discretionary stuff, being more careful with big-ticket purchases. Walmart has been one beneficiary of this. The retail giant says it continues to draw more higher-income shoppers to its grocery aisles, for example. Walmart says between February and April, sales online and in stores grew 7.4%. Company executives say shoppers are choosing more store brand products and smaller packaging, but shoppers also visited more often and spent more each time. Walmart forecasts that its sales for the year will grow 3.5%. Alina Selyuk, NPR News. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. A federal judge has ruled that the permits issued to offshore vineyard wind project do not violate the Endangered Species Act. The ruling comes after some residents in Nantucket sued to block the construction of wind turbines. They said those turbines threaten endangered right whales. The project includes mitigation actions to protect right whales, such as speed restrictions for boats while the turbines are being constructed and while they're operating. Cape Wind is the first commercial-scale wind power project in the country. It's facing three lawsuits on similar grounds. Jobless claims dropped by more than 14,000 in Massachusetts over the last week. Nearly 21,000 people filed for unemployment benefits in the state. That's according to the latest numbers from the U.S. Labor Department. Analysts say the large drop in new claims is due to a recent spike in fraudulent claims filed in Massachusetts. The State Department of Unemployment Assistance says fraudulent unemployment claims are rising nationally and that Massachusetts is no exception. The Bay State can expect a hotter-than-average summer this year, according to new federal data released today. Jana Infanti is with the National Weather Service's Climate Prediction Center. The reason here for the increased temperatures really is based on above normal um, coastal sea surface temperatures that have been surrounding New England for quite a while now. And we also have decadal trends that are tilting towards warm 
Massachusetts is also its second win, win, uh, warmest winter this past season. Coast Guard Beach in East Ham on Cape Cod is one of the 10 best beaches in the country. So says Stephen Leatherman. He's a coastal ecologist, also known as Dr. Beach. He developed the list. He uses criteria that include sand type, wave action, and levels of development. Coast Guard Beach ranks 10th on the list. The state park on St. George Island off the Florida Panhandle ranked number one. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Lots of blue up above. Should have clear skies into the night tonight. Not quite so chilly as last night, falling to the mid-40s. Another day of sunshine tomorrow. Breezy, a little bit milder, could reach 70 degrees. Then for the weekend, kind of mixed. Saturday, mainly cloudy, possible afternoon showers in the mid-60s. Sunday may be damp to start, then sunny and dry later, a strong wind up in the mid-70s. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive, nature.org solutions. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. President Biden is on the other side of the world today in Hiroshima, Japan, meeting leaders of the G7 nations. They've been looking for ways to make it harder for Russia to continue its war on Ukraine, taking a closer look at sanctions and export bans. NPR White House correspondent Scott Detrow joins us from Hiroshima. Hey, Scott. Hey there. Russia's war in Ukraine is the top agenda item at the summit. So what are leaders planning on doing? Yeah, a lot of these G7 countries, all of them actually, have been providing military support in one way or another to Ukraine. But the main tool they have used are sanctions against Russia. And their goal has been to try to cut Russia off from the international financial system, starve it of the funds that it needs to keep going. Uh, A U.S. official tells us more sanctions will be announced today by all of the members And for the U.S., that will include new bans on exports of U.S. products to more than 70 companies and organizations in Russia and other parts of the world. These are companies that the U.S. says are selling stuff that Russia needs for the war effort, stuff that is banned, and now they're going to be blacklisted for doing it. Other announcements will be coming as well, and that will include steps that will be taken against more than 300 people who have been going around existing sanctions – These are people in Russia, but also around the rest of the world as well. Well, as you say, there have been existing sanctions ever since Russia invaded Ukraine more than a year ago. Is this new round a sign that the stuff these countries have done over the last year has not been effective? I think it's a sign that that what's been in place to this point maybe hasn't had enough time to kick in to make sure that that Russia is isolated and paying a price for the war. And part of that is sanctions do take a long time to work. Uh, Here's Kim Donovan, who worked on sanctions at the Treasury Department and is now at the Atlantic Council. This is a slow process. So anything that occurs in this space is not going to have like an immediate impact that maybe we're accustomed to seeing on like in the battlefield where like things go boom. This is gonna be a slow burn. 
But when it comes to whether existing sanctions are working, I, I do think it's telling one of the things that the summit is going to focus on is improving enforcement of the sanctions that have already been put in place. Uh, officials say there will be more announcements about closing off more loopholes that Russia has been exploiting. And kind of tweaking that is really important to make sure they keep working because Russia has found ways around these sanctions. And here's an example from Max Bergman, who used to work at the State Department and is now at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. We've seen uh, a huge import of washing machines uh, making their way into Russia where they're trying to take out the microchips and then use them for uh, missile production or other weapons. And one other thing to note on Ukraine, we, we, we talked about this briefly yesterday, uh, the G7 leaders are probably going to have the chance to engage with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in, quote, one way or another. Uh, that was according to a U.S. official who talked to us. Uh, we will see whether that's by video or perhaps something else. We have been noting that, that Zelensky is traveling outside of Ukraine this week. Hmm. I'm just stuck on those microchips from washing machines being used in missiles. Okay, well, we spoke yesterday about the trip being cut short because President Biden is also dealing with the debt ceiling. Here in Washington, White House aides have been on Capitol Hill continuing the talks, looking for a deal to raise the debt limit. How closely are the other G7 countries watching that issue? I mean, the, the global economy would, would definitely take a hit if if Biden and House Republicans can't reach a deal, as we've been talking about all the time. The deadline is just around the corner, and the official who briefed reporters was, was noting that, that faulting on the debt would undermine U.S. leadership and weaken the power of the G7. A, a weaker U.S. financial system would, would actually hurt sanctions, because think about this. These sanctions are based on punishing people by cutting them off from U.S. banks. If the U.S. economy is in flux, people and companies don't actually want or need to use U.S. banks. It's less effective sanctions. That's NPR's Scott Detrow in Hiroshima, Japan. Thank you. Thank you. All right. The first vaccine to protect babies against one of the most common respiratory viruses took a major step forward today. Advisors to the Food and Drug Administration endorsed the vaccine to guard newborns against RSV. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein joins us now. Hey, Rob. Hey, Elsa. So I remember RSV surged over the winter, and it was such a big deal at the time. But can you just remind us how big of a problem RSV is in a typical year? Sure. You know, yeah, RSV came roaring back with a vengeance last fall, playing a big role in last winter's miserable triple-demic, you know, overwhelming children's hospitals around the country. Mm -hmm. But even in normal years, RSV is a huge problem each fall and winter. Most kids will catch RSV in their first year of life. For most, RSV just causes a cold, but 2 or 3% of newborns will be hospitalized for RSV, making it the leading cause of hospitalization for very young babies. As many as 80,000 babies end up in the hospital each year because of RSV, mm -hmm. and between 100 and 300 die, according to the CDC. Here's Dr. Eric Simoes from the Children's Hospital of Colorado, who spoke on behalf of Pfizer, which developed the new vaccine. There's nothing more distressing for parents than the frightened look of their three-month-old infant struggling to breathe, being unable to feed. The first vaccine to protect older people who are also at high risk for RSV was just approved by the FDA, but despite decades of efforts to find a vaccine that can protect babies, this is the first time an RSV vaccine for newborns has made it this far. Oh, really? So is there something special about this vaccine to have made it so far? 
Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we typically think of vaccines as a shot we get to protect ourselves against, say, the flu or COVID. Uh But there's a twist with this one. It's a shot that pregnant people get six to nine months into their pregnancies to protect their babies for the first six Hmm. months after they're born. It works by stimulating the pregnant person to generate protective antibodies, which are then passed to the developing fetus in the womb. And in a big study involving thousands of pregnant people conducted by Pfizer, the shot was almost 82% effective at protecting babies against severe RSV in their first three months of life and 69% effective at protecting them against severe disease in the first six months. That sounds pretty good. Are there any concerns about the vaccine? Any downsides? Yeah, you know, a previous experimental vaccine ended up actually making RSV worse without protecting babies. And even though that was way back in the 60s, that specter has kind of cast a shadow over this whole field. Now, there's no signs of that problem with this vaccine, but there was a lot of concern about a little hint that those who got vaccinated might be more likely to give birth prematurely. Here's Dr. Paul Offit from the University of Pennsylvania. I worry that if preterm births are in any way a consequence of this vaccine, that would be tragic. But then Dr. William Gruber from Pfizer argued that the clear benefits of the vaccine outweigh unproven risks. The question is, do you hold hostage the potential benefits of the vaccine for something for which you have no statistical significance? And then in the end, the FDA advisory committee voted unanimously that the vaccine is effective, but the committee then voted 10 to 4 that the vaccine is also safe. Okay, so the committee likes what they see in this vaccine. What happens next? The FDA will now consider the advisor's votes and decide what to do, and it has to make a decision by August 21st. I should mention that the agency is also considering approving this vaccine for older people, too, as well as what's known as a monoclonal antibody to protect babies. So, you know, after decades of frustration trying to find ways to fight RSV, there's finally some possible options coming to protect, you know, this fall and winter. That's great news. That is NPR health correspondent Rob Stein. Thank you so much, Rob. Oh, you bet. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's been nearly five years since Hurricane Florence devastated parts of eastern North Carolina and two years since Hurricane Matthew hit the same area. But thousands of families whose residences were damaged or destroyed in the storms are still waiting for a state program to bring them home. From member station WUNC, Colin Campbell has more. Along a busy highway north of coastal Wilmington, Sonia Black is playing with her chickens. Hey, Looney! Keeping chickens is a pastime she's started with her family because they can't live in their house yet. And Looney is the great one because literally he's Looney. He's, he's crazy. Water flooded their home when Hurricane Florence damaged the roof with rain and wind in 2018. Since then, they've been cooped up in a small donated RV behind their 3,000-square-foot house. It's been gutted and is waiting for contractors from the state's Rebuild NC program to install drywall and flooring. The Blacks haven't been given a date for when the work will start. And it's taken a toll on us. We don't have hot water still, five years later, so we boil water for washing, cooking, and so on. Black says it's been especially hard on her three kids who've had to share space. We have an 18-year-old child. His bedroom is the RV on the couch. So 
we've been having to deal with that. The Blacks are one of nearly 5,000 families impacted by Hurricane Florence and 2016's Hurricane Matthew that needed the rebuild program to restore their homes. It helps people who didn't have flood insurance or had their insurance claims denied. It's funded by federal dollars but administered by the state. So far, just about a quarter of all projects have been completed. Laura Hogshead with the rebuild program says it was hard to find contractors willing to deal with the extra paperwork that's required in federally funded projects. And the private sector has been so robust in the housing market that we didn't have a whole lot of the general contractors that were anxious to take on that extra burden. But she says that's changing thanks to a slowdown in the housing market. So we've got about 65 that are on our list right now. About half of them are still working through the paperwork. About 30 minutes west of the Black family, down a narrow dirt road in rural Pender County, Bob Salt is waiting for one of those contractors. He's lived in a hotel for a year and a half, and before that he was living outside on the covered deck of his flooded home. Salt has no idea when construction will start. Yeah, they said, I think 2026 it's going to be, that's, that's the projected ending date. So, I mean, I don't want to be waiting until 2026, you know. So. I don't know, though, the way that it's going. State officials are confident that Rebuild will get everyone's home finished before federal funding expires in 2026. But that will require more than 65 contractors. At the current pace, it would take more than five years to get through the remaining 3,800 homes in the pipeline. Salt doesn't want to wait that long to return to his slice of paradise along Holly Shelter Creek. He's been dreaming about what he'll do when the house is complete. Oh, playing guitars and cooking. That is what I really look forward to the most. But it ain't look like we'll get it this year, yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, hurricane season starts again next month, prompting questions about whether the state will be ready to quickly help future storm victims. For NPR News, I'm Colin Campbell in Jacksonville, North Carolina. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us this evening on All Things Considered. Tomorrow morning on WBUR, meet Denise. She's a receptionist who welcomes newcomers at the pearly gates. The TikTok celebrity helps people see grief in a fresh way. Meet her tomorrow on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. And Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, icaboston.org. Despite the dry weather, most of the state is free from drought conditions, according to today's U.S. Drought Monitor. Only southeastern Mass and the Cape and Islands are listed as abnormally dry. Should be dry overnight tonight, temperatures about the mid-40s. Then for tomorrow, sunshine's back, pretty glorious, highs near 70 degrees. For the weekend, we could get some rain, especially on Saturday. Heavy on the clouds, showers in the afternoon, highs in the upper 60s. And then for Sunday, sunshine moving in eventually, windy again, up in the mid-70s. It's 549. WBUR supporters include Huntington Theater, just announced. 
Don't miss Huntington Artistic Director Loretta Greco's first season in Boston, featuring seven shows, including a musical and a reimagined classic. Season ticket packages available now, starting at just $156. Learn more at HuntingtonTheater.org. The U.S. military promised to implement policies that would counter extremism in its ranks. The services took in more than 200 reports of extremist activity just last year. So has the Pentagon made progress? We're really stalled out on an issue that's incredibly important. You know, it's like a drop of poison that can destroy all the water. That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Time now for some science news from our friends at NPR's Shortwave podcast. Emily Kwong and Regina Barber are the hosts, and they are here for the latest science roundup. Hi, you both. Hey, Ari. Hey, Ari. What have you got for us this week? So we have three stories for you, and this time they all have to do with structure, with how things get built and become greater than the sum of their parts. I love a theme. Yeah, I mean, one is about the construction of literal buildings, one is about building the perfect gummy candy, and one is about how single-celled organisms might build themselves into more complex ones. Tantalizing. Regina, kick us off. What have you got first? Yeah, Ari, I'm here to bring you news that will take some guilt away from parents around the world. Used disposable diapers can be repurposed to produce concrete and Build houses. A diaper house? Why Why would you build a house out of diapers? <laughs> well, because it's cheaper and greener. And aside from building regular houses, researchers think it could be useful in disaster relief when you need to build a new house quickly and at low cost. And you need to do it with what's lying around. And at a time when there's actually a shortage of sand used in regular concrete, researchers are interested in finding more sustainable alternatives like dirty diapers. I'm sorry, do the houses smell like dirty diapers? <laughs> No, they're sanitized. <laughs> Tell us about one of these houses. Okay, yeah, they're testing this out in Indonesia, a country with a significant housing shortage. And a team of researchers led by Siswanti Zoraida actually built a small prototype house, about 400 square feet, using diaper concrete. They shredded the diapers, added chemicals to sanitize them, and mixed them into concrete to replace some of the sand. And they published a paper about it this week in the journal Scientific Reports. And they said you can use about 10% of diapers for external load-bearing walls, but for non-structural walls or floors, it could be up to 40% diapers. And it could also be used for roads. Driving on diapers. So, okay, this sounds like right now proof of concept. Could it actually be scaled up and be easy and inexpensive? I mean, that's the hope, right? And these scientists told me that they still need to work with local city governments to work on collecting the diapers like they do for recycling. And any community that wants to take this on will probably need to buy some machinery. And there needs to be some further research to make sure this process can be replicated easily and affordably. But yeah, that's the goal, a process where materials are provided locally and the benefit is also local, like everything within the community. Okay, so diaper houses is story number one about structure. Emily, I understand story number two is a little bit smaller. Much, much smaller, yes, in scale. Ari, we are going all the way back to biology class, to that one chapter about single-celled organisms, as you might remember from school. I can picture them under a microscope. 
Yes, yes. So at various moments in the history of evolution, single-celled organisms evolved into multicellular organisms, giving rise to complex life forms like my cat, your dogs, and of course, uh, you know, us three. Mm -hmm. And there's a new paper out in the journal Nature describing how that process may have happened, how single cells started building themselves into a multicellular body capable of moving and metabolizing as one. How did researchers in the present day unlock the secrets of this evolution that happened hundreds of millions of years ago? It's a fascinating story. Okay, so it started when this guy, Will Ratcliffe, an evolutionary biologist at Georgia Tech, was in grad school. He wanted to figure out how to encourage single cells to stick together and set up an experiment with brewer's yeast. And his question was, you know, how do you force multicellular evolution in a lab? Here's Will. We knew that we needed a way to give an advantage to things that form groups of cells because we're starting out with just single cells. So every day, Will would swirl the yeast cells in their test tube and extract the ones that sank to the bottom the quickest. He then used that population to grow the next day's population of yeast and repeat it and repeat it and throw out all the other cells. What was so special about the yeast cells that sank to the bottom? Well, it's because they stayed together. Basically, he's hacking biology, creating a selective pressure where yeast that stick together survive. And within two months, the yeast cells created this branching structure of dozens of cells that looked like a snowflake. Notably, Will had this breakthrough while snow was falling down from the sky. This is sort of an homage to the fact that this started in Minnesota in the middle of winter. Big snowflakes were falling down. And he continued this work with yeast snowflakes, as he calls them, for years. A colleague at Georgia Tech, Ozan Bozdag, determined that if you deprive generations of yeast oxygen, they grow even bigger and stronger, each cell becoming more entangled, the bonds as tough as wood. And that is the kind of development that gives rise to true multicellularity. So what does this tell us about how single-celled organisms became your cat or my dogs? <laughs> it's a very good question. So that kind of evolution happened dozens of times. Um, our ancestors are different than yeast. But what these experiments do show is that multicellularity is possible not just because cells stick together. It's because the bonds between them are strong and lasting. There's a metaphor there about strength as a collective. Okay, we've saved dessert for last. You've got research about gummy candy? What's that? Yeah, I mean, we saved the most compelling structure for last. Yeah, researchers at Uzian University and Middle East Technical University in Turkey basically wanted to know, how do you keep gummy candies optimally gummy? And that's why we call this show All Things Considered. Uh, <laughs> how do you define optimally gummy? So I'm, I'm really glad we could bring this to you today. Okay, I, I just mean like <laughs> shelf-stable and chewy because no one likes stale gummies, right? right? So I don't. Yeah. Mm -mm. Uh-huh. So uh, these Turkish researchers published their paper in the journal Physics of Fluids this week detailing a bunch of gummy candy experiments. They wanted to know how changing up things like the glucose syrup to sugar ratio or storage or temperature conditions would change the end result. And this matters for candy quality. Yeah, I mean, all right. As a physicist and as a candy lover, I love this research. They had so many combinations of gummy creation that they had to use statistical modeling to describe it all. They even measured the average length of the bonds between molecules in the candy to make a judgment call about which candy-making method produced the best structure. This is material science at its finest. All right, you're burying the lead. What's the conclusion here? What did they learn? So the best gummy combination, according to this research, for a stable candy with a long shelf life involves reducing the cornstarch, 
and increasing the gelatin in the mix. And to keep them soft, storing them at like a warm room temperature. Because if it if it gets too cold or too hot, they get stiff. I'm going to take my gummy bears out of the refrigerator as soon as I get home. <laughs> There is a fun fact, though, Ari. From a material science perspective, this actually totally makes sense because gummy candies are long chains of molecules, and they undergo something called the glass transition, meaning that when they get cold, they get harder and more brittle like glass, and they start to lose some of that flexibility and chewiness that we love in our candy. I think we all get a little less flexible in the cold, wouldn't you say? Emily, (laughs) Regina, thank you so much for bringing us this cutting-edge research. This was really fun. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Emily Kwong and Regina Barber host NPR's science podcast, Shortwave, where you can learn about new discoveries, everyday mysteries, and the science behind the headlines. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. Thanks for joining us at 90.9 WBUR this evening. Still sunny, still breezy. Basically a beautiful evening coming up. Tonight, starlit skies, temperatures in the mid-40s. Sunshine's back tomorrow. Pretty nice with highs just about 70 degrees. Then some much-needed rain coming up this weekend, mainly for Saturday. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty. On stage May 25th to June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual info session May 25th. buacademy.org. I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Across the country, the number of drug overdose deaths has slowed, but many states continue to see fatalities rise up to 20% last year. We are, as a country, in for bad times for still years to come. A new CDC estimate shows that overdose deaths in the U.S. topped 109,000 last year. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, farmers in Arizona rely on the Colorado River to water their crops. But a decades-long drought and the effects of climate change are forcing them to find new ways to save what's known as America's salad bowl. New York City's mayor wants to bus migrants to the local communities. Community members say they want to help the migrants but don't have the money to support them. And Boston-born Donna Summer is the subject of a new HBO documentary. It tells the story of the disco queen's life and career. It's 6.01. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are next. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen met with national and regional banking leaders in Washington today. As NPR's David Gurr explains, Yellen told them what she's been telling Congress. The U.S. may be unable to pay its bills in a matter of weeks. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and more than two dozen bank executives, including the heads of Citigroup, Bank of America, and J.P. Morgan Chase, talked about the recent turmoil in the banking system and President Biden's economic policies. But they spent a good chunk of time discussing the debt limit as the White House and congressional leaders are trying to hammer out a deal to avoid a default. According to a readout from the Treasury Department, Yellen outlined how failing to raise the debt limit would be, quote, catastrophic for the financial system. And she said the consequences of inaction would be severe. David Gura, NPR News, New York. A man accused of killing five of his neighbors near Houston late last month made his first court appearance today. From Houston Public Media, Jack Williams reports. Francisco Oropesa has been held on $7.5 million bond since he was captured a few days after the shootings that occurred near Cleveland, Texas, about 45 miles from Houston. He hasn't been indicted yet, and a judge says a grand jury likely won't hear the case until at least next month. Oropesa is charged with five counts of first-degree murder, but his attorney, Lisa Andrews, says the public hasn't heard the whole story. The focus at the initial outset was finding and arresting him, but beyond that, I hope that the story will be told in a more nuanced way that is more accurate. Andrews says Oropesa was a well-known handyman and even did work for the neighbors he's accused of shooting. For NPR News, I'm Jack Williams in Houston. The first vaccine to protect babies against RSV took a big step forward today. The Food and Drug Administration's advisory committee voting to recommend approving it. NPR's Rob Stein has more. The vaccines designed for pregnant people who are six to nine months pregnant. The shot stimulates the pregnant person to generate antibodies against RSV, which are then passed to the fetus in the womb. A study conducted by Pfizer, which developed the vaccine, found it was almost 82% effective at preventing babies from developing severe RSV in their first three months of life. RSV is the leading cause of hospitalization among infants in the U.S. The FDA is expected to make a final decision by the end of August. Rob Stein, NPR News. Deutsche Bank is agreeing to pay $75 million to settle a lawsuit claiming the bank should have been aware of sex trafficking on the part of former client Jeffrey Epstein. That's according to lawyers representing women who say they were abused by the financier who later killed himself in prison. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow is up 115 points. The Nasdaq was 188 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. The the NAACP Boston and other organizations are taking legal action in the fight over new voting districts in the city. Lawyers for civil rights filed a motion in U.S. District Court to ensure the new electoral map complies with the Federal Voting Rights Act. A previously approved map was tossed out after a federal judge ruled that it likely violated the Constitution. The city council must now approve new voting districts again. A Fitchburg man accused of killing a five-year-old boy and dumping his body along Interstate 190 is being held without bail. Alberto Sierra was arraigned today in Worcester Superior Court on charges he murdered his then-girlfriend's son, Jeremiah Oliver, one decade ago. 
He allegedly put the body in a suitcase and then discarded it along the highway in Sterling. Sierra pled not guilty to both charges. Two dozen 19th century medals stolen from the Springfield Armory National Historic Site have been returned. The medals were bestowed upon two armory workers and brothers for their rifle shooting prowess more than a century ago. The awards were stolen from the armory in the 1990s. Authorities learned of their whereabouts in 2021 when a collector called the armory to inquire about the medals. The FBI does not think that he knew they were stolen. Eversource is taking steps to prevent power outages on Cape Cod during severe storms. Spokesman Bill Quinlan says Eversource kicked off an infrastructure project today to strengthen the region's electric grid. He says upgrades will include taller structures made of steel and more robust power lines that won't be broken as easily by fallen trees. Quinlan says the project will also tap into offshore wind for the electric grid. The significance of this project is that it will dramatically increase the access uh, to clean energy for customers throughout Massachusetts. Quinlan says right now the project does not translate to lower energy costs, but it may down the road. If you plan to go to the beaches in Gloucester this summer but don't live there, you'll have to make a reservation for parking. The city is requiring visitors to use the Blinke mobile app to reserve parking at three of its beaches. Reservations are required for non-residents beginning May 27th and can be made up to 10 days in advance. Pretty gorgeous today. Clear skies overnight tonight, down around the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunny and warmer. Could hit 70 degrees. 62 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lodestar Foundation. Inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. We have a new snapshot of the country's opioid fentanyl crisis today. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released preliminary data on drug deaths in 2022. There are some hopeful signs, but overall, the overdose crisis is not easing in the way that some experts had hoped. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann joins us now to explain. Hey, Brian. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so tell us more about what these new numbers show. Well, the big picture is that drug deaths in the U.S. hit another agonizing new record in 2022. This, again, according to the CDC, more than 109,000 people died, many from fentanyl overdoses. And on a human level, case by case, it's an incredibly hard moment. I'm talking to a lot of families who've been devastated by this. Fentanyl's now the leading cause of death for young Americans age 18 to 45. So a lot of families losing kids, a lot of young kids losing their parents. Happening all across the country in every demographic, though, Elsa, we are seeing particularly devastating rises among Black and Native Americans. Mm. You say it's happening all across the country, but I imagine different states are being hit differently? Yeah, that's right. It's a really complicated picture right now. Some states are still seeing just remarkable surges, drug deaths in Washington state and Wyoming, for example, up more than 21 percent in a single year. Texas and many other states up 10 percent. New York City, where I spent a lot of time reporting, saw drug deaths explode again, rising 13 percent. But there are some other points here. Two states hit hard by the opioid fentanyl crisis, Maryland and West Virginia, actually saw some improvement. Fatal overdoses there declined by roughly 7%. Wow. 
So do we know why these particular differences that you're citing are happening? We don't. And that's one of the frustrating things. This drug data, unlike the data we got on COVID during the pandemic, is gathered really slowly and it's kind of spotty and notoriously inaccurate. These preliminary CDC numbers we're talking about, they're just now telling us what happened back in 2022. And that makes the public health response really difficult. I spoke about this with Dr. Nora Volkov, who's head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse. And she acknowledged federal agencies grappling with this crisis are often sort of flying blind. What is happening right now? I don't know. So if you want to actually be nimble and flexible and do the interventions on the basis of what you are observing, you need timely data. Otherwise, you're doing it with your eyes closed. So that's really tough, given that we're decades into this opioid crisis. We're still seeing only about one in 10 Americans with drug addiction getting health care or treatment. So it's dangerous and frustrating for families who are struggling with this. Yeah. One hope was that drug deaths would fade pretty quickly along with the COVID pandemic, right? Like, is there any sign of that starting to happen? The short answer, sadly, is no. And this is a thing troubling a lot of the experts I've been talking to. There was this explosion of fatal overdoses in 2020 and 2021. A lot of people thought it might be triggered largely by the isolation and disruption of COVID. But Dr. Volkov says these new overdose death numbers suggest we're just not going to get that kind of quick relief. One could have expected is as many of the challenges that were imposed by the COVID pandemic are resolved, that we will see a decline in the number of overdose deaths. It's concerning that we have not seen that. The big factor, Elsa, keeping these death numbers high, it appears to be fentanyl, this synthetic opioid, which is just so powerful. The street drug supply more toxic than anything America has seen before. And now we're seeing xylazine and other chemicals on the streets. So keeping people with addiction alive just keeps getting harder and harder. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to ask, are there any bright spots in this new data? There are. As I mentioned, some states are seeing drug deaths decline. Maryland, South Dakota, West Virginia all improved. Florida saw almost 200 fewer drug deaths in 2022. And it's also important to point out that the national drug death picture, it's not rising as fast as it was. It's more of a plateau, which isn't great, but it's better than the really deadly trajectory we were on before. Absolutely. Well, do any of the experts you talk to have an idea about how this crisis, this wave of drug overdoses might end one day? It's a great question. And unfortunately, the answers I'm hearing on this aren't particularly hopeful right now. We're seeing the COVID pandemic fade pretty rapidly. But no one I talk to believes we'll see a similar recovery from opioids and fentanyl. This is something families are going to be struggling with for years to come. That is NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Voters in rural America are a key part of the Republican base, and that part of the country is also heavily affected by climate change. NPR's Jimena Bustia reports that for farmers in the political battleground state of Arizona, concerns over the environment transcend party lines. Craig Alameda has been farming cotton, dates, and leafy greens in the Yuma Valley since the early 90s. To grow crops in the southwest desert, Alameda and farmers throughout the region rely on water from the Colorado River. When we first got here, the river was overflowing and it was, they had way too much water. And that's 30 some, 35 years ago. But the region has experienced drought for over a decade and the water has long been over allocated. That means too many people have been taking too much for too long. So current water levels aren't enough to meet demand. And everybody's been, uh, just taking it and 
taking it for granted, basically, and now the roosters come home to roost. Craig is driving us along the All-American Canal, which is fed by the river and in turn feeds the farms. But in the face of shortages, federal and state governments will start cutting farmers' water. This is the canal that we're all sharing. This is the whole thing that is going to have to decide on who gets what this water is right here. This is the, the heart of the whole deal. The river fosters a vibrant ecosystem. This region is known as America's salad bowl. So a lot of these fields down here are for that spring mix where you buy... Rural areas like these are among those bearing the brunt of climate change. And it's not just the drought. Worsening wildfires, temperature swings, and monsoons all affect food production, utility costs, and livelihoods. These communities also tend to vote Republican, which can put them at odds with climate activists and environmental protection groups. I can remember when we were younger, when you're considered a farmer, you were considered a conservationist. It was kind of the opposite, where we were the ones for open spaces and, and taking care of everything, and now all of a sudden we've become the bad guy. Farmers from this region insist they're not the bad guy. In a roundtable discussion with farmers across the political spectrum, everyone agreed on one thing. Something needs to be done to address the water shortage. But there's no easy answer to the current crisis. I have conflicting opinions rooting around my head on how much the government should be involved in our business or not. That's Matt McGuire. He runs a major produce farming operation in Arizona. McGuire is a registered Republican, but considers himself to be more independent. I mean, it's great that they give us money. Then I think, well, then you got this great big bureaucracy and a waste of money behind it. Maybe it'd be better if they just gave us double tax breaks, got rid of the bureaucracy, and let us figure out our farms ourselves. As an example, McGuire says his business is too large to benefit from money given to farmers in President Biden's recent infrastructure bill. Other conservative farmers say they are taking advantage of Democratic policies like a record $20 billion for conservation programs. Some Republican lawmakers now want to repeal that money. Kyle Kuchel comes from a Trump-supporting and citrus-growing family in Yuma, but he is a staunch independent. The folks that we have in office currently, we don't get to repick, so you have to work with them, or at least try. If you don't try, you're dead. Kuchel recently spoke to Democratic Senator Mark Kelly about some of the problems the industry is facing in Arizona. Hopefully it'll be, it won't fall on deaf ears. We'll see. I didn't vote for the guy, but uh, if he listens to me, I'd vote for him. While the politicking continues in Washington, farmers are running out of time and water. Decades-old legal agreements between the federal government, states, and Native American tribes have resulted in the overallocation of the river. Any solution will require water users to agree to cuts water users like Cassie England. So we're right now at the beginning of cotton season. We plan it on Friday and it's up, so. She's a fifth generation farmer here in Pinal County, Arizona, and she's already been affected by cuts to the river water. We're getting none at this time, yeah, completely none. And so the groundwater levels in our area are good, but we need to be able to maintain that and not overuse that. She said some of her neighbors can't access that groundwater, leaving them with no water at all. We're just lucky that, that we don't have to deal with that because that would be a very big worry because, yeah, there's some people that are going to be in a dire situation. England attended community discussions about ways to deal with the water shortage before cuts were announced, and sometimes those conversations got political. 
you could see a, a, a line and it would be between individuals that would come in and be concerned about overpumping of groundwater and then more on the conservative side they would say no we have sufficient groundwater. But now that the area is seeing real effects there is widespread agreement on the need for solutions. It's more so just wanting the Colorado River system to be changed. Everybody kind of has the same opinion I think. The farmers we talked to said they're willing to consider candidates and policies from either party, weighing if those policies might help or hurt their businesses. That could be key in Arizona, a pivotal state for both Democrats and Republicans in the 2024 election. Robert Medler with the agricultural lobbying group Western Growers says for farmers, addressing environmental concerns is beyond party politics. Whether it's your local councilman all the way up to the president of the United States, you're looking for action. You're looking for issues to be addressed. I think people just are frustrated because they don't see that or and they, they don't feel it. Medler fears any potential solution will be tied up in courts as states, tribes and water users fight over agreements. But until an official resolution is reached, farmers will continue to adapt their practices in order to fill America's salad bowls. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Yuma, Arizona. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Marketplace starts at 6.30. Coming up tonight, pistachio farmers in California face rapidly changing temperatures last year that took a toll on crops, climate change, and pistachio farming. Tonight on Marketplace again, it starts at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSC SIPC. Stocks rose for a second straight day today. The Dow picked up about three-tenths of a percent. The S&P gained nearly a full percent. The Nasdaq rose about one and a half percent. The Massachusetts economy is still growing, but at a much slower pace. According to the UMass Amherst Donahue Institute, the state gross domestic product grew at an annualized rate of 0.1 percent in the first three months of the year. That's down from 2.9 percent in the final quarter of 2022. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students pursue their passions as far as they can take them. Virtual info session May 25th, online at buacademy.org backslash events. Still sunny out there right now, a beautiful evening ahead. Clear skies overnight tonight, not quite as chilly as last night was. Should be in the mid-40s tonight. And then for tomorrow, sunshine's back, breezy, a little bit milder, could reach 70 degrees. Then for the weekend, kind of mixed. Saturday, mainly cloudy, possible afternoon showers, highs in the mid-60s. Sunday may be damp to start, then sunny and dry later on, a strong wind up in the mid-70s. 62 degrees now in Boston at 620. WBUR supporters include the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. 
now open, WorcesterArt.org, and Red Fire Farm, organic summer farm shares with veggies, fruit, cheese, and more. Delivery or pickup in Cambridge, Somerville, Newton, and other towns, RedFireFarm.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. New York City has received up to 50,000 migrants in the last year or so and says it's at capacity. Officials have started sending recent arrivals to neighboring cities and towns, and that's causing tension. Several local governments say they cannot handle the financial burden. NPR's Jasmine Garst reports. On a spring afternoon in Yonkers, Justine Sugru, an 83-year-old retired nurse, stopped by the Ramada Inn to see how she could help out. I came to drop off some clothing. I think everybody wants to help. But she says she's confused about how to help. No one, not even officials, seem able to tell her what's going on. Chaotic seems to be the operative word when it comes to migrant policy in New York. A few days ago, the city sent several vans, up to 100 migrants, to neighboring Yonkers. Here's Yonkers Mayor Mike Spano. We were given little to no notice. Um, There's no plan still today. There's really no plan. He says Yonkers is going to step up. And we're going to treat the refugees the way they ought to be treated. They're human beings, and and, uh, we're Yonkers is a hospitable community. But Yonkers already has its fair share of economic woes, and he's told New York City officials it can't shoulder the cost of social services for new arrivals. The question of housing for migrants has been heating up across the state. Governor Kathy Hochul has asked the federal government to open certain military facilities. She's also requested expedited work permits for asylum seekers to become financially self-sufficient. About an hour north in Newburgh, the mood towards migrants is different. Residents Linda Sheeler and Marlene Conley say they're worried. Conley says, I have compassion, but I don't have compassion. I don't know. I just think it's It's uncertain. A few days ago, New York City sent about 180 people to hotels here. For Sheeler, it's a matter of resources. You know, years and years and years ago, the Statue of Liberty, bring bring your homeless, your helpless. But now it's it's a different world. And we, we can't do that. We can't do that anymore. There's, where are we going to put everybody? This county and neighboring Rockland County both declared states of emergency. That helps get financial aid quicker. The counties also sought restraining orders against New York City, stopping it from sending any more migrants. The orders were temporarily granted by a state Supreme Court judge. Here's Rockland County Executive Ed Day. This is um, incentivizing illegal immigration, and it does nothing to support our infrastructure or the hardworking citizens we elected to serve. It is only draining taxpayer resources. That's just blatantly discriminatory and unconstitutional in in a number of respects. Amy Belcher is with the NYCLU, who is suing both counties. She also thinks concerns regarding 180 or so people arriving in a town of nearly 30,000, like Newburgh, boil down to political showboating. I think that there is no real state of emergency, as is being declared in these counties. This is actually not a very large number of people, especially compared with the large numbers that are in New York City right now. Far away from the political arguing in this lush green town of Newburgh, where many migrants have landed, at least for now, some locals say they feel the tension. Activist Ignacio Acevedo is also with the NYCLU. I've been screaming at to go back to my country. This is my country. It's the first time I have experienced so much vivid hatred. 
that tension always existed a little bit here, but now it's multiplied. He understands it's a difficult economy for some, but... When we have our neighbor moved in, we should at least go say hello. It doesn't cost you anything. Regardless of politics, he says, that's what good neighbors do. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, New York. Donna Summer wasn't just a disco queen. She was a songwriter and musician who influenced stars like Elton John. I remember when I Feel Love came on at Studio 54, you just stopped in your tracks. What is this? NPR TV critic Eric Dagan says a new HBO documentary on Summer airing Saturday comes from a unique perspective because her daughter was one of its directors. The film Love to Love You, Donna Summer reminds us that Summer's introduction to America's pop music charts in 1975 was a particularly steamy moment. That song, which gives the documentary its title, was a smash hit that led the record company to dub her the First Lady of Love. But as the singer herself would say, it fed a sultry image that was not her actual personality. I approach it as an actress. I'm not trying to be me. What I am there to do is to become the character. And but Love to Love You struggles to explain who Summer actually was, despite including interviews with family members, archival clips, home movie footage, and input from her daughter, actress and director Brooklyn Sudano. Sudano co-directs the film with Oscar and Emmy-winning documentarian Roger Ross Williams. Here, her sister, Amanda Ramirez, speaks out on how secretive their mother could be. We were never allowed in her room. The door was always locked. We would find out things by reading newspaper articles they had clipped out and hidden in places. I actually remember the first time that we heard Love to Love You. Didn't even know it existed. Brooklyn came in the room and was like, have I got a song for you to hear? The film also makes the case for Summer's creativity as a songwriter, noting how she worked with longtime producer Giorgio Moroder to create the percolating synthesizer part powering her next big single, which Elton John loved, called I Feel Love. When I went in to do it, I had the sense that I was floating, and that's what we wanted to maintain, that floaty kind of, that elation that you feel when you're in love, that kind of... Born LaDonna Adrian Gaines and raised in Boston, Summer grew up singing in church and moved to Germany for a production of the musical Hair, where she began making records. The film offers lots of performance footage and behind-the-scenes clips recounting her fights with her record company, abusive lovers, and struggle to be recognized as more than just a disco queen. But perhaps because Summer held back from her family, the film rarely digs deeply into any aspect of her life before moving on, especially when Brooklyn Sudano asks her uncle, Rick Gaines, about allegations his sister was molested by a church pastor. Uncle Ricky, mom never talked about being abused by the pastor with me. Did she ever talk to you about it? Yes. He did a lot of damage to a lot of people. Did the devil's work better than most. It became a defining moment in her life. It's not easy when you don't tell. I have the ability to tell people, but how do you get out of it? Even Summer's death in 2012 from lung cancer is handled obliquely, with fleeting glimpses of what she went through provided by a few short stories from family members. Such pivotal moments deserve a bit more detail. Without them, the audience remains at a troubling distance.
For those who only know Summer through hits like She Works Hard for the Money and Last Dance, HBO's film offers important context about her talent and lots of great performance footage. But like the artist herself, the film can also be frustratingly enigmatic, just when you want to know more. I'm Eric Deggins. So let's stay. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Red Sox take on the Padres and former Sox slugger Xander Bogarts tonight in San Diego. James Paxton takes the hill for the Sox. Blake Snell throws for the Padres. First pitches at 9.40 tonight. Boston Bruins postseason didn't go the way the team or its fans expected, but the players for the team that set an all-time mark for wins and points in a season are being recognized. David Posternock is a finalist for the Hart Trophy as the league's most valuable player. Goalie Linus Allmark is a finalist for the Vezina Trophy given to the league's top goaltender. Jim Montgomery is up for Coach of the Year and Captain Patrice Bergeron has been nominated for a couple of awards. This is WBUR. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths and Concord helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com.